So our church is in John, you know that. This last week, we have been in John chapter 15, and there were two verses I read this last week. As I was studying the passage that stood out to me, verses 18 and 19, it says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. When I read those verses, I thought of all people, of Barbara Walters. Do you know Barbara Walters? You remember her? She was this pioneering news anchor, first woman on a major network to be the anchor for the flagship news program. She was most famous probably for her interviews of world leaders and celebrities. I don't know how many she did, but she was quite well known. Some years ago, she wrote a memoir called Audition. And she says in that book that many people say to her, I would love to have your life. And she says to them, well, you can have it, but you have to take the whole package. You don't get the glamour without the hard work. You don't get the accolades without the criticism. You have to take the whole package. I read these verses and I thought, being a Christian brings such blessing into our lives. Peace, a deep sense of forgiveness, a new power to live on a different plane. Being a Christian is a blessed experience, but you do have to take the whole package, the whole package. And part of being a Christian is being put out of sync with the world, not fitting in with the world. And if you don't fit in, people let you know it. You get shoved to the side, and there are times when people will hate you. Now, hate's a strong word. And we don't always see hate in its pure form. In fact, we don't normally see hate that way. We do sometimes. Around the world, there are Christians who are being persecuted by those who hate them. And in our country, there are people who hate Christians. I remember many years ago, I was on the LSU campus. I was witnessing to a young man in front of the in front of the student union. I was a young man witnessing to a young man. I was a student, we were both students. I was just sharing Christ with him. Another student came and stood by and started listening in. After a few minutes, he interrupts. He narrows his eyes. His lips turn into what I can only describe as a snarl. He looks at me and he says, you disgust me. That's what he said. You disgust me. He didn't know me, but he knew I was a Christian. And the whole Christian thing disgusted him. That's hate in a pretty pure form. But usually it's like it's, like it's in an eyedropper and you just get a drop here, drop there, and it shows itself in cutting sarcasm or ridicule. It shows itself in angry words. Or sometimes no words at all. People separate. They want nothing to do with us. They exclude us. It can touch our lives in many different ways. I know parents who have children who will barely speak to them 
And when they do, there's nothing civil about it. And it's all because of the wedge Christianity has driven between them. It may not be directly the Christian faith. That is, it's not acknowledged that, but, but the Christian faith entails certain commitments, and those commitments can sometimes be rejected by children, and the children then, they reject the parents because of it. But it goes the other way, too. You might remember a couple of years ago, I told you a story of a young man I knew. He was in his early 20s, accepted Christ. He was an alcoholic, He was an alcoholic by his teenage years. He accepted Christ in his early 20s, and his parents gave me a call. His father gave me a call, and he made it clear in no uncertain terms that he didn't want his son to have anything to do with Christianity. Well, you understand that your son was dying from alcoholism, and Jesus Christ in his life has set him free. He's a new person. I don't care. I'd rather him be a drunk than a Christian. So it's not just children to the parents, it's parents to the children, but it's not just that. It's on the job you might find yourself being isolated or overlooked for promotion or for for other things because of your Christian faith. There are lots of ways in which hostility shows itself. It's on a spectrum, just as Jesus talked about murder and he said, well, you know what? Anger or contempt for another person, it's not murder, but it's It's the same kind of sin. Maybe it's different in degree, but it's the same kind of sin. So we as Christians will face sometimes pure hatred, but usually, usually it's in that attenuated form, but we'll face it from time to time. So how do we face it? It comes with the package. How do we meet it? How do we deal with people who are hostile to us because of our faith? I think that's a good question. So I want to try to answer that, drawing on some scripture and some concepts that we find there. I think the first thing we have to do, and this might surprise you, is make allowances. By that, I don't mean make excuses for the person who is rebelling against God. I don't mean that. But I do mean trying to understand that person in their own terms and have some sort of empathy for their situation, realizing that the unbeliever might be a sinner, but is also someone who is victimized, someone who is deceived, someone who is confused about the truth. I want you to think about Jesus on the cross. There he is hanging on that cross. He's been abandoned by his friends. He is put there by the Romans, repudiated by the religious leaders, the people, many of whom had celebrated his arrival in Jerusalem the week before, were now scoffing at him as he died on the cross. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Why? They know not what they do. He's not saying they're innocent, but this is a kind of mitigation of guilt. What he's trying to say, or what what the background of what the Lord is saying, is that this is a terribly serious sin, but it's not a demonic sin. Theologians sometimes distinguish between sin, 
and the demonic. The demonic is to sin with the clear knowledge of exactly what you're doing. To know God and know the truth of God and in cold blood with full engagement of will to choose evil because it's evil. That is the demonic and there is no redemption for the demonic. Human beings created in the image of God are this ambiguous mix of good and evil. There is sin, but there's also good. There's confusion and deception and weakness, lots of other things mixed up in that unbelief in which someone lives. The unbelief that causes hostility toward you and your faith. It's important for us to remember that. Think about the Apostle Paul. He says that he was a persecutor and a violent man, but he received mercy because he acted out of ignorance and unbelief. He's not saying he was innocent, far from it. He says, I was the worst of sinners, but he acted in ignorance and unbelief. He didn't fully understand what he was doing. We need to understand that others don't understand. We need to try to understand why it is that they're hostile. People are driven by fear, misunderstandings, um, aspirations that, that they think are worthy, though they may not be. There are all sorts of things at work and their hatefulness can come out of that. We need to, we need to make allowances for that. We need to understand them. Rosaria Butterfield, is the wife of a Presbyterian minister, mother of two children, and a best-selling author. In fact, she wrote a best-selling memoir. It talks about secret thoughts of an unlikely convert because Rosaria was not the sort of woman that you would expect to be married to a Presbyterian minister. In fact, she was a professor at Syracuse University, an English professor who also taught in women's studies. She was active in LBGQT um, circles and in advocacy. And she and her lesbian partner were frequently engaged in advocating for all the causes around that issue. She, for instance, wrote the, the policy regarding LGBT students and their partners for Syracuse University. According to Rosaria, every Christian she knew during those years was, and these are, these are her words, intellectually impaired. She said, they didn't know what they were talking about. And what's more, whenever I heard of Christians, the only ones that I knew were the ones who wrote me hate mail and told me how God hated me, or the ones who showed up at gay pride parades with, with you know, signs saying that God hates you. That's how she saw Christians. One of her research interests was conservative Christianity, or what she considered right-wing Christianity. And she wrote an article one day, this was in the late 90s, about Promise Keepers, which is a men's organization, a Christian men's organization that was very prominent at that time. And it was a withering critique of Promise Keepers. She got a letter from a pastor, Ken Smith, Smith 
And he was responding to her article on Promise Keepers and in a very friendly way invited her to come over to his house and meet with he and his wife for dinner just to get acquainted. Well, she decided he might be good research. I mean, he might know something about the sorts of things she's researching. So she decided to go, and she tells about this in her memoir. So she drives there, and as she, she drives up, she says, I became so conscious, so aware, she said, these are her words, of her butch haircut and her pro-gay, pro-choice bumper stickers on her car. She felt awkward getting out and walking to the front porch, but she did. And she brought with her gifts, a bottle of wine and some tea. When she entered, she expected that this was going to be a tense and difficult evening. In fact, she said, the whole evening I was waiting to get punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. Because you have to understand, in her mind, she sees Christians as hating gays. She believes that. And she's heard some people say some pretty hateful things. What's more, she said she came to her identity and her culture and her values partly out of her life experiences, but she said, I came to them also through deep thought and study and she cared about these things deeply. I mean, obviously, in terms of sexual ethics, she's far, she was far from Christian ethics, but she did have a concern about justice and fairness and caring for the poor. But at this time, she doesn't believe in God. She says, you know, God is dead. If there is a God, God can't possibly care for the world when you look at all the poverty and all the wars and all the sexism and racism and every other ism. She said it can't possibly be. So she goes to visit with this pastor, more or less doing research, feeling rather awkward, expecting something really uncomfortable and offensive. And what she found instead were two people that she liked instantly. She said, my values because she had real values, real commitments that were important to her. My values were important to me, and they seemed to sense that. And we talked through the evening. She said, they didn't witness to me, and they didn't invite me to church, which kind of blew my whole Christian script. Because she's expecting, you know what, they want to talk to me because they want to convert me, they want to get me to church, and they don't really care about me, but they they cared about her. And that started a two-year process. She didn't go to church. She said, I would have felt weird in church. I couldn't even relate to church. I, I would have been, you know, completely confused and offended by church. But they brought church to me. They brought church to me. Two years later, she receives Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she said, it was chaos at that point. It was chaos. She said, I lost everything except the dog. She lost everything. Her partner, the goodwill of colleagues, a whole professional career, a whole academic career, 
she now sees as fundamentally flawed and wrong. But the whole reason I'm bringing up Rosaria is because she's an example of a human being, a thoughtful human being, a human being who cares about right and wrong, who was confused and in darkness and doing wrong, but not knowing, not understanding she was doing wrong. She felt hostile to Christians because she thought Christians were hostile to her. She hated the church because she thought the church hated her. And it was only as God graciously began to clear those things up that her life could be put in order, and it has been. And so we need to make allowances in the sense that we acknowledge that people often don't sin with understanding, but out of confusion and out of ignorance. And that they have, there are many different things going on in their heart. And we have to have some empathy and have some concern for that. Now, when we do, the second thing that should happen and must happen is we need to be patient. Be patient with that person who can be so ugly to you. And that's so hard. When it's someone close to you who, who is so angry, they can barely speak to you. And when they do, it is disrespectful and it is angry. It is so hard to be patient with that. But, well, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, be patient with Everyone, everyone be patient. The word patience actually comes from the Latin, which means to suffer. And so to be patient means to suffer long without getting angry or upset. It's not that you accept something as good, but you decide you're not going to let your emotional life fluctuate up and down. Based on that, you are a Christian, and so as a Christian, you're trusting God, and you're patient with people that are in process because you're in process, right? God has been patient with us. Apart from God's patience, there's no salvation. Surely we can be patient with other people, and so that's another way to respond. When people are negative toward us because of our faith, we need to be patient with them. Now, it helps if we understand empathetically, if we kind of see where they're coming from, as I just talked about. But even then, it can be so hard. I mean, it can be so hard. Maybe you've heard about the father who was sent by his wife with their little boy to the grocery store. He had to pick up some things. So he strapped his son in the grocery basket, and, and he starts pushing the cart down the aisle. Well, the son wasn't going to tolerate that. He starts struggling. He wants to get out. He starts to cry. He cries louder. He starts to scream. He reaches out, grabs a can off the, off the shelf and throws it on the floor. It is going crazy. And all the people see what's going on. They kind of steer their carts around, give him wide berth. But the whole time, the dad keeps saying, Jason, it's okay. Jason, be calm. Just, just relax, my boy. It's going to be okay. 
It's going to be okay. And a woman comes by and she hears him and she says, you know, I just think it's so wonderful that a father knows how to speak to his, his young son, you know, with a calm and soothing voice. And she leaned down and said, Jason, how are you? And the father says, no, that's Andrew, I'm Jason. <laughs> Sometimes you have to talk to yourself, you know? Sometimes you have to just say, I can't take it. Just settle down, be patient. It's hard. So we need to make allowances, try to understand the person. We need to be patient. And then thirdly, we need to hold to our integrity. And I mean that in two ways. I mean by integrity, both Christian consistency and also Christian courage. Consistency, we have to live like Christians. Here's the key. It's not so much that we have to convince the unbeliever that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's where we want them to get, but that's not the first priority. The first priority is to convince them that you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not to get them to believe, but to get them to believe that you believe. That it's not just something that you you spout off with words, but you live it, you care about it, you're committed to it. When they know you believe it, that changes everything. That's really what I think Jesus was getting at in Matthew. Let me read to you what he says in Matthew 5. You have heard what You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, live as a Christian, distinctively as a Christian. And that means not just reacting to the other person or answering them in kind. It means acting out of your faith. And, of course, that means loving people, praying for them, praying for them praying for them, praying for our enemies or for those who treat us unkindly with disrespect. So Christian consistency, it's absolutely crucial, but also Christian courage. Or perhaps I should say strength of character. It's so important in our day for Christians to be loving, to be kind, to be empathetic, to be patient, to be consistent in their witness, but also to be firm in their faith. It's not for us to cave just because people don't like what we believe, just because people slander us or accuse us of being whatever. Just because we want to fit in doesn't mean we have the right before God to compromise so that we can't fit in. No, we have to stand with integrity and we have to stand as Christians even when 
even when taking that stand is hard. And it's by doing that that we show our integrity as Christians. Without that, there is no witness. Too many Christians today are, are trying to bargain with the world and revamp the faith to fit in with the world because they think, well, then they'll love us. Then our witness will be strong. And they don't have a clue. That's not the truth. We need to be so gracious, but also so firm at the same time. Only God can help us do that. I was thinking about the movie 42. Are you familiar with that movie? It's about Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier, barrier in the major leagues. It was, it's a tremendous story. Branch Ritchie was the, the uh, or Branch Ricky rather, was the owner of the Brooklyn uh, Dodgers back, back in the day. He was a Christian man. And he had come to the conviction that it was time to end the segregation that had characterized the major leagues. So he found out about this outstanding ball player, Jackie Robinson, who played for the Kansas City Monarchs. And he decided he would offer Jackie Robinson a job. Now, he knew the lay of the land. I'm talking about Branch Rickey. He knew, he knew in segregated America with all the racial animosity that this was not going to be easy. And so he knew it was vital that Jackie Robinson not just be a great ball player, but that he be a man of tremendous self-control and integrity. So he comes to Jackie Robinson, he makes that proposition, and there's a beautiful exchange that takes place, or I should say a powerful exchange that takes place. If you go ahead and start that. So Jackie Robinson says, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back? Is that what you want? Branch Ricky replies, no, no. I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Follow a curse with a curse and they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow and they'll say, the Negro lost his temper, that the Negro does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win with hitting, running, fielding, only that. We win only if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great ball player. Like our savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? You give me a uniform, you give me a number on my back, and I'll give you the guts. Whew. He did. I don't know if you know this, teams often retire numbers of their great players. Major League Baseball has ruled that number 42 would be retired for all major league teams. Jackie Robinson was one of the great players ever, but one of the great men who's ever, who's ever played baseball. But you notice it was not by reacting, it was standing in his integrity and oh, what he dealt with. And you can imagine the times when he just wants to break something. I mean, it had to have been difficult. Watch the movie or read some of the biographies. You'll have an idea of what I'm talking about. 
As Christians, we need to stand in our faith, in integrity, not bending, having the strength of character to accept not being accepted or excluded or disliked or marginalized or ridiculed or whatever else. We have to accept that and not, not flinch an iota, not a bit. And all the time, continue to love and pray for our enemies to show what Christianity really is. So the whole package, the whole package comes and it includes the world not much liking us, but our response has to be giving back the opposite of what the world gives us. It's a very non-political thing to do. In politics, you have to hit back. But in the Christian faith, we don't hit back. We don't hit back. I want you to pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would make us witnesses, powerful witnesses, by standing in integrity, Lord. And Lord, being patient with others and understanding their confusions and, and their misunderstandings. Lord, to love them in the name of Christ but also be firm in the gospel. Lord, we want this. We want this so much. We pray you would help us do it. And we pray, Lord, also for friends who are here this morning who perhaps haven't yet come to that faith in Christ, that you would touch them and save them now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.